Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Greer. Today, we're going to have an incredible episode, just like always. So sit back and enjoy this episode. We have a few topics to discuss before we get to the all-important cognitive questions. And many of these topics deal with things that happened last week. The first topic we're going to begin with is... Last weekend, on Saturday, it was the third anniversary of January 6th, which the left is trying to turn into a solemn holiday. In the same way, in the 2000s, they turned 9-11 into a solemn holiday of remembrance and something that we have to cry over and weep over, over what happened on that day. And people are still talking about this issue uh, three years later. And there is a lot of interest into this topic, and you know it's definitely going to play into the political campaign of 2024. Biden is deciding to make January 6th his campaign pitch for 2024. He already released an ad just before. He did speeches uh, to commemorate uh, January 6th. He's talking about the terrorism we saw on that day, and they released an ad showing uh, once again not only did the ad have january 6th but it also included charlottesville so (laughs) you know seven not even yes seven years after charlottesville democrats are still campaigning on this rather unimportant rally that really uh, in the grand scheme of american history wasn't that unique wasn't that different but they've turned it into this into in the same way with January 6th into another 9-11. The ad includes it because when Biden ran for president in 2020, his chief pitch was Charlottesville. The ad, the opening ad he did, opening speech he did, he said he decided to run for president for Charlottesville. Literally no one believes that. Everyone knows why he ran for president. He always wanted to run for president and he was no longer being badgered to stay out because of Hillary Clinton and his donors were not backing Hillary Clinton this time, so he got in to run, and then he's just like, oh, this is a fight for the soul of America, and so he had Charlottesville. Now the Charlottesville is being taken over by J6, and that's what's being fought for the soul of America, but I'm, I'm doubtful that this will work this time in 2024. As the Democrats, one of their big pitches for 2022 was January 6th, and the threats to democracy. Now, they did have much better results than they expected. You know, this was a disapp- it was a disappointing election for Republicans. But it's hard to state how much of that was due to J6 and the threats to democracy and all these ads trying to connect Republicans to J6ers. I remember in a lot of these ads in 2022, especially in you know blue or battleground states they always had j6 footage to tie the republican to is like oh look this guy is tied to the rioters who threatened our democracy and i noticed in 2023 the ads weren't a, weren't as prominent that they weren't tying it as much before in 2022 as they were doing in 2023 and so this is a change and a lot of that is due to the american public's change you have to remember is that, you know, the American public doesn't have a, as strong of a memory of things. You know, they move on from topics that may have dominated their attention for a year or even a few months, but eventually they move on from things. And Republicans are having trouble with that. Or, I don't know if trouble is the correct word, but a lot of Republicans are trying to rerun on covid And this because, one, this issue really helped them out in 2021. 
it didn't quite help them out as much in 2022 because the lockdowns were lifted. Um, you know, people had got, you know, vax mandates have been lifted. People who had been vaxxed, people who had not been vaxxed. You know, this was a serious issue in 2021, but in 2022, it began to dissipate. And by the time of 2023, it's no longer not that much of an issue for voters. DeSantis hardly campaigned on COVID and lockdowns. He tried hard to make it, but, you know, polling showed that this was just not no longer grabbing the attention of Republican voters. They had moved on, even though this had been something that had really devastated their lives in 2020 and into 2021. You know, it cost them their job. It had, you know, restricted to where they could move. It made them wear a face mask everywhere. You know, it's something that really impacted their lives. But by the time it had lifted, you know, they it's in the past. They don't really want to relitigate the past. I've been arguing this when it, you know, DeSantis was running and in 2023 when people are like, oh, we're going to run on Nuremberg too. And I was, I was just simply saying is like voters aren't really that interested in relitigating the past or these things where they have just moved on from. And largely that has happened with COVID. And the same is going along with January 6th. Now you have the hardcore liberals who are still very animated by January 6th, in the same way that you have hardcore right-wingers who are still motivated by COVID, even though not as much as before. I think it's definitely been a change since 2023. I mean, if you looked at what people were talking about early 2023 on right-wing Twitter, what was their main focus, you know, the vaccines, COVID, Fauci, all that stuff was definitely animating them a lot more than what it is in January 2024. But they still definitely care about it, and it's still something that can elicit their interest. In the same way with January 6th. Well, January 6th, you know, it's a little bit too much. And, and media outlets are trying to do this, uh, you know, to make it into a serious issue. You know, Jonathan Capehart, this black MSNBC host, I think he still writes for the Washington Post as well. You know, he had this horrible officer, uh, Fanon, I think is his name, who has all these tattoos uh, even hand and neck tattoos. He's a, he's really violated the Greer head pledge. I'll tell you that. And he's on there and the guy, and he begins crying about J six and even the off the police officer who was there on J six and always talks about his trauma of being there. You know, he even thinks that's a little bit too much. And it was really forced in the way that they were doing these, uh, remembrance of J six. You know, most people, the centrists and independents have moved on from J six. It no longer really, you know, it no longer really interests them that what happened on that day. And it's not quite, you know, they just kind of shrugged their shoulders. And even Republican and Republicans have definitely moved on. You know, when J6 happened and, and the month after and a few months after, you know, Republicans were still, you know, not happy with J6. But now that's changed. Uh, some of that's due to the narrative that uh, many Republicans now believe it was an inside job uh, concocted by the feds. You know, uh, others just believe it wasn't that big of a deal. And so most Republicans are, you know, and sometimes Republicans didn't think it was that bad of a thing when it happened. You know, that those are the things that's the what's Republicans have completely moved on from this. They they if you bring up J6, it's it elicits anger towards Democrats than it does towards anything that Trump did or Republicans did. So they no longer care about this. And you can even see this with Mike Johnson, who had been spearheading the House effort to challenge the election results on January 6th. 
And, you know, everyone who's like saying like all these congressmen who've been involved, this could be a black mark against them. They're never going to be able to run for office. They're going to be hounded out and arrested. Nothing happened to them. And Mike Johnson was easily able to become House Speaker and it proved no problem for him among Republicans. Democrats complained about it. But in terms of like the list of complaints against uh, Mike Johnson, I think him... Uh, it, it's about equal to the news story that Mike Johnson uses some porn detector on his phone and his son's phone to make sure they're not watching porn. That got as much attention as him being involved with uh, the the challenges uh, against the election. So it didn't even really work against him. Now, there's a reason Biden wants to run on this, because the guy he's going to run against, uh, I mean, unless there's some... Insane miracle that happens on next Tuesday, which I wouldn't even say a miracle. It's just like a you know, catastrophe or something. Uh, you know, Trump's going to win the Iowa primary. He's going to easily win the primary. I mean, their only hope is that everyone drops out and endorses Haley. And even in that scenario, she'd still lose, but she'd win a few states. Like she'd probably win New Hampshire, maybe. Um, you know, based on the latest poll, it only showed her within three or four points of Trump in New Hampshire. So if like DeSantis dropped out or if Chris, if both DeSantis and Chrissy dropped out, she would probably win if that poll's accurate. But even if she wins New Hampshire, she's still going to lose the vast majority of states. And so Trump's going to be the nominee. I just want uh, want to be clear about that, which we'll talk about more when that when next Monday. But so he, who he's going to run against is the guy responsible for J6, the guy who's being charged over his actions to challenge the election. And so he wants to revive that and say, this is what they've done to our democracy. They're going to charge into our capital or our sacred hall of democracy and, and overturn our very form of government, which is not what happened. But I don't think this is, is going to be as appealing of a message as you might think. Or as for what Biden has. But Biden has very little to run on. I mean, there's no record to run on. He hasn't done anything in office. Uh, even stuff that maybe you would say are an accomplishment, like withdrawing from Afghanistan, which you know Republicans weren't happy with, but I think it was ultimately the right move. It maybe didn't go well. You know, he doesn't want to run on that because he doesn't want to remind people of that. And a lot of his uh, foreign policy hawks that back him were very upset with that. You know, Ukraine, that's no longer the American public just doesn't care about that anymore, which is why there's now more push for to, de, you know, cut off funding for Ukraine and reach a peace deal because American people are just moved on. That, that happened two years ago. They don't have the type of uh, attention span to keep paying attention to this. So they don't care about Ukraine. Uh, he has literally no record. Uh, you know, there's, you know, 300,000 migrants came across the border that we apprehended last month. Immigration is, is a disaster. The economy is really sluggish. You know, it's maybe not quite as bad as some may have thought, but it's not really, you know, and people have always said in media, they're like, well, the, the economy looks good on paper, but most people have a really bad opinion of the economy. So he really can't run on the economy. There's nothing he's really passed that has helped Americans. Uh, there's no really foreign policy. You know, the world's gone to shit since he's been president. Uh, he really has nothing. So he only can attack his opponents. And really what he's got is abortion, which actually is a useful tool. It is uh, is a politically potent issue. 
It's worked in 2022. It worked in 2023. People want to argue about how much it affected Democrats, but it helped. It definitely helps Democrats. They've got threats to democracy, which I don't know if that's a really a good issue. <laughs> that's really helping them. Then they've got you know candidate quality, I guess, are saying that these guys are too radical, which you could say that maybe that helped them a little bit in 2022, uh, but it might not help them in 20. 24 because unlike some of the candidates that were bad candidate quality they weren't donald trump and donald trump gets out a lot of high turnout from these voters who would otherwise not show up to vote republican when donald trump is not on the ballot and this happened in 2020 happened in 2016 when trump is on the ballot there is a high turnout in favor of republicans now there's also voters who turn out for the democrats but it about evens out and he really excites and and gives people a lot of enthusiasm and it makes up for a lot of the Republican organizational problems and fundraising problems that they're going to have in 2024. So that's something to keep in mind. And so like Biden just doesn't have anything. But the one thing that he does have that a lot of my audience is probably not going to like that may help him. There is something connected with J6 and not the J6 Act itself, but there is something that I do think pushes voters in a Democrat direction is the idea that Republicans are going to steal elections. Now, we all know that that's stupid. And we all know that there's something there with how Democrats have been, you know, passing all these rules and laws to expand ballot access, to expand mail-in ballot and to allow them to ballot harvest more and do some other dubious means to secure elections for Democrats. We all know that. But for a lot of voters, and I think this is something that impacts a number of centrists and independents, is that they do believe that some of these Republican tactics are going to try to throw out their ballot. And this definitely agitates for Democrats. And I think there was something there, because if you look at what happened in Arizona in 2022, it looked like Republicans were going to win there, both Carrie Lake and Blake Masters were going to win the race. You know, Carrie Lake was a one in a generation uh, talent, political talent, very charismatic, had very enthusiastic rallies. She's running again as well. And then she and she really ran on this idea that Democrats stole the election. And everyone predicted that she would win. And then it turned out that she did not win. And it didn't appear that abortion was a major factor in in Arizona, even though Arizona uh, I think their Supreme Court of some sort uh, upheld a like 19th century law outlawing, <laughs> outlawing abortion of some sort, uh, which probably you know impacted the election a little bit. But if you look at like what the major issue there was, you know Carrie Lake was really highlighting this issue throughout the primary into the general election, and it you know the perception of voters I think and especially in these battleground states where they definitely fought over the, you know, the election in 2020, I think they still had a negative, you know, taste uh, over, over those efforts. And this is probably more apparent in Georgia because Georgia was the one state where Trump, you know, backed candidates and he supported candidates with the exception of Herschel Walker, but Herschel Walker was also backed by the GOP establishment. It wasn't just a Trump solo project on that, which they all tried to blame him for. You know, Mitch McConnell was strongly backing him in 2021 there was you know it wasn't just all trump's fault that this guy became the sole candidate 
But in the other races, in the gubernatorial races, uh, you know, lieutenant governor, uh, most of the statewide races for state office, you know, Trump lost badly with the candidates he backed. And it was these Republicans who, and the Republicans who won, were on the side of saying, oh, we, we stood up for Georgia's elections against the attempts to over, overturn these elections. We're standing up for them uh, for election integrity of some sort. And, you know, the fact that Trump's guys he backed who were ran primarily on the issue of that, you know, Brian Kemp and his cronies did nothing to, you know, stop the steal. Uh, you know, that backfired on them. They all lost badly. Except for, I think, for except the secretary of state, which was a close race. But still, that guy who the guy who got in the race was a congressman heavily backed by Trump. And he still lost against the <laughs> against the uh, Raffensperger. That's his name. Raffensperger, who was like the face of stop the steal of the on the other side of the stop the steal of these Republican traitors who aren't doing anything about this. And that guy won. And so that does say something. And those are, that's for primaries. That's not even general election. That's primaries. And I think that there are, and if you look at any of the other states, you know, Michigan, they didn't do well. Um, Pennsylvania, they didn't do well. And Arizona, they didn't do well. And so a lot of these efforts where there was strong stop the steal efforts, uh, didn't, do, didn't go so hot for Republicans in, in 2022. Now, that could, some of the, you know, outrage and, and hard feelings over that stuff may have go away by the time of 2024. But there is something there with these voters. And it, voters have long, long had, in America, have had long had this real hostility to the idea that their ballot can be thrown out or not counted. And they've always had a real uh, strong sentiment in favor of voting rights. And it's, and it's always very hard. I mean, also, they do care deeply about voter fraud. But it's also depending on whether they view this as more as voter fraud or as throwing out their ballot for whatever reason or discounting their vote. So it could prove an issue for Biden with no record to use against Republicans and maybe help himself out. But there's an easy way to, to, to deflect from this issue. And that's one thing is just to you know, be a little uh, Trump. I don't know if he can do this, but he probably uh, doesn't need to relitigate the 2020 election and the, and the rigging uh, of that time on the campaign trail. Now, when Republicans get into office, they can really pass some election reforms to strengthen the elections and ensure that there's less fraud and fewer dubious ballots being passed. So when they get in power, they absolutely should go really hard on this issue. But when they're campaigning, it's, uh, it's better to focus on things that help you out. And that's immigration, crime, you know, the disaster of foreign policy, the economy, taxes, you know, this, all the stuff. And pretty much every issue for Republicans, with the exception of abortion, helps them. So they have a wide palette to go after Democrats with. And with this, I think it's, you know, for when you're in the commentaries, your commentary, you can talk about this and say, you know, the problems with it. But I think on a campaign trail with what we saw in 2022 uh, in a lot of these battleground states, it for whatever reason, we can talk about how much they're cucks or whatever. But it does have does feel or does seem to turn off centrists and independents. So it's better to wait till after you win the elections to really 
hone in on this issue and do something about it. And once you have the power, you once you win elections, you have the power to actually do something about it. Well, on the campaign trail, it's better to talk about other issues. So I think that's a way that Trump should tackle this issue for 2024. I don't know if <laughs> I think he may do this, but Trump's just going to be Trump. Even if he does talk about this, I still think he has a strong chance of winning because of everything else going on in this country and and Biden's own deteriorating mental health and everything else. I I think Trump still has a strong chance. But he's also helped along by, you know, the original topic I have is that, you know, J6 is that liberals want to 9-11-5, J6. They want this to be a solemn occasion for the near future and that we all come together to remember our our threats to democracy and how we must fight more to protect our democracy but it's just not going to work one like j6 didn't affect people in the way that 9-11 did you know nearly 3,000 people died on on 9-11 you know it shut down new york city it it, it, you know it shut down washington dc everyone knew somebody who had died in 9-11 or some type of connection. It could have been like a friend uh, of a cousin or something of the sort. Like every, a lot of Americans knew somebody affected. With with J6, the only people who died on that day were were Trump supporters. <laughs> Which, I mean, it's not a lot of laughing matter, actually. But the only people who died on that day were Trump supporters. Uh, they try to claim that all these officers who died of health, you know, weird health causes or kill themselves afterwards were victims of j6 but that's just preposterous to claim and but really when it comes down to it it was the only people who died were trump supporters the i mean you know ashley babo was shot to death and it really just showed it really was not that traumatic of an event for the country and the country has just moved on from it but biden wants to bring it back and revive it in hopes that he can run on this for 2024. But even, you know, Charlottesville didn't really help him out in 2020. I mean, he ran on Charlottesville, but he hardly talked about it. I mean, he'd talk about it as like, oh, the, uh, the bulging, their bulging veins and all this stuff. I think in one debate he brought it up, but, you know, it was not a centerpiece of his campaign. And so he's going to have to figure out other things for his campaign. But it could be an entirely a campaign about, <laughs> abortion and how Trump's somehow going to steal your ballots. And that I think that's all he's going to be able to run on. So that is it for that topic and looking into the future. Obviously, we're going to talk more about the elections coming up because we've got the primaries. The first primary is next week. So we will give a preview of that on next week's Highly Respected. I think that said it was next Tuesday. It's actually next Monday. It's actually on Martin Luther King Day. So lots of things to cover for next week's Highly respected. But moving along, we're now going to talk about a topic that I thought about making the central issue of this of this podcast. But I already talked about it a lot for last week's IQ supplement, so I don't want to dwell on it too much. And that is everything that's going on around the universities with Claudine Gay resigning or departing from her position. Bill Ackman now wanting to take on DEI and this war over DEI that's about to set to take place in the universities and where it might lead what things we questions we might have, what some skepticism we may have over this fight. So I just have a few thoughts on this. You know, if you want to listen to my full thoughts, you've got to go over to highlyrespected.substack.com to find out. We also have a, a convoluted question that deals with a subject that I'll address right now 
go to another topic and then talk about the other Cotton League questions at the end of the podcast. So we need to size up what are the battle lines being drawn here in this fight over DEI. On one side, you have a lot of uh, billionaires, most of, a lot of them Jewish, who are... I don't even know. It's really just one. It's really just Bill Ackman. There's a few. There's maybe a handful of others, but it's really just Bill Ackman, Chris Rufo, and conservative media. And on the other side, you have the DEI complex, most black leaders. You have Barack Obama. Barack Obama was actually defending Claudine Gay and saying she shouldn't be fired before she was pushed out and several other, and most of the mainstream media, even though the mainstream media was also pushing for Claudine Gay to be removed, largely because the plagiarism was embarrassing, and the unstated reason was that they were also upset at her for not doing enough to combat anti-Semitism on campus, so they also were more agreeable to getting removed, but now that she's been gone, they're now highlighting a lot of opinions saying that this is an act of racism towards black women and we need to defend all black women in, in higher education because of this. So these are the battle lines being drawn. And a lot of conservatives are getting really hyped up about this. They're really thinking that now is the time to go after DEI. People are now standing Bill Ackman in the same way that they've been worshiping Elon Musk for a long time, which... You know, Elon Musk has done a lot of good things. Uh, I I think Elon Twitter, despite my many complaints about the a lot of the, you know, the usability. Well, I haven't complained that much about the its ability to be used and like the problems, the technical glitches that's in be happening. But I've also think I think that it's been able to open up people to a lot of new ideas they wouldn't have heard about before. There is a lot less censorship, but it also comes with a lot more stupid <laughs> at the same time. But on when you're judging it in it whole, it's generally a good picture that's going on with uh, with social with with Elon Twitter. So with that in mind, you know, carrying on with what's going on with Ackman. Ackman, the wor- you know, the worship around him is Ackman is uh, been a longtime Democrat donor. Uh, people were pointing out how his philanthropy is given to a bunch of left-wing organizations. He's acting confused by it when he was confronted. Whether he truly knows it or not, who knows, but he's still handing out all this money to NGOs. Maybe he just gives out a, 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 a huge pot of money and says, hey, just divvy this up to whatever organizations are doing humanitarian work and it ends up in left-wing groups' hands. Or maybe he intentionally knows this, but now he knows this doesn't have a good look when he's trying to win over conservatives to his side. Whatever. He, in the past, he's not been a guy anywhere close to somebody that conservatives would like. But he's very uh, cares deeply about Israel, as we can see. And he initially went after these universities for not doing enough to combat these students protesting Israel. And that's been his initial... Th- that's been his initial motivation and his strongest motivation and his primary motivation for most of these donors who've been complaining. When John Huntsman decided to pull out money and attacking Penn uh, over this, it wasn't over DEI, it was over the failure to combat anti-Semitism. And they removed their president from, from Penn. She's a white woman, there's no complaints over that. And it's not like Penn is moving in the direction of rolling back DEI. They're just saying we're going to censor more on our campus and we're going to have lower free speech standards on our campus, which isn't really good for the right. 
especially because the right, you know, there's a huge fight over Amy Wax, a uh, professor there who's invited Jared Taylor and said some very key things. And they've been trying to remove her from tenure because she's violated the code of conduct by stating her views. And now with the new standards that they're trying to have, that's trying to guarantee a safe space for more people and to, you know, even have a higher hate speech uh, restrictions, you know, that doesn't, that does her no favors. And that doesn't do any other conservative professor who may criticize immigration or say things that are politically incorrect. And it's, definitely applies to students. So that was the, that is something that has to be kept in mind when we're thinking about this fight. This was not a fight over DEI. This was a fight over campuses not doing enough to curb campus anti-Semitism. And that has been their primary motivation. Now, Ackman, unlike others, has been talking about DEI. You know, he had a long, he's had several long posts talking about how he's really feels DEI is at the root of the problem. And he really wants to combat it now. He wants to eliminate it from universities. So maybe maybe he's a, a genuine convert. Maybe he's using just a strong bargaining position to get what he really wants, which is greater censorship of anti-Semitism or anti-Israel opinions and to include Jews within the DEI framework, which that is what other universities are doing. University of Michigan is already doing that. They're, they're now including... Jews within the DEI framework, and they're putting out all these anti-Semitism workshops and stuff and saying that we're not going to tolerate this. And really what they mean is that a lot of the protests and criticism of Israel may fall under campus hate speech laws, and that's not going to be good for those students who get involved in that. And so that's what we're seeing with Ackman. Now, the, what conservatives believe is that Ackman has now just changed his focus from campus anti-Semitism to DEI. And he's also going after the media for reporting on his wife's own plagiarism. And he's about to be unchained and attack universities. Now, I do think he's going to be attacking universities. Uh, he may be sidetracked to go after the media outlets attacking his wife. Um, we'll have to see what happens. I mean, conservative media will follow him along. It's the same way that they've done with Elon Musk. No matter what Elon Musk did, they would be like, this is awesome. When Elon Musk... Uh, weirdly changed Twitter to X, like conservative media is like, this is awesome. Please donate to us, Elon, or any other type of changes Elon did to Twitter or anything else he would do, like conservatives would be there to champion along. And now there's going to be the same case with Ackman, which I don't really think that's the right way to approach this, but a lot of people are just eager to have someone retweet, a billionaire retweet them or to potentially give them money. So they're all just kind of twerking and dancing for Ackman and hoping and hoping that he will notice them, which is a little unseemly in my opinion. But if he, you know, if he's going to help curb DEI and maybe he does help that, you know, maybe conservatives are right to have enthusiasm. But I think that there is not enough skepticism of what could occur here. And we have to remind ourselves what caused the Claudine Gate to be removed. First off, there was a lot of push after the House hearing where, you know, they didn't condemn anti-Semitism enough and that pushed out Pence president, there was a lot of push to remove all the university presidents who were there. Claudine Gay was protected by being a black woman. Then they found the plagiarism, which then added with her statements on anti-Semitism, she was then able to be pushed out because the mainstream media was eventually covering this stuff. They at first were standing by her, though, because like this is just conservative media that's curious about it. 
uh, she'll correct the errors. But once you know, New York Times, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal began covering it, they had they took action because that's getting to donors, and then donors um, and their board cared about it. So they pushed her out. Now, can they replicate this for other officials? Depends on their offense. And if there's like a DEI official who isn't really tied to Israel or something, and maybe they have a little bit of plagiarism, because some of this plagiarism is, it's bad and it's like showing sloppy academic research, but some stuff they will just defend. If it's like, and they were willing to defend Claudine Gay's plagiarism. I think if she had been just a professor, I mean, and they're still keeping her as a professor with a nearly million dollar salary. You know, if it's just like a random official, they may keep these people. Though what would really help push them out is connecting them to the Israel stuff, because that's what really agitates their donors. That's what agitates the mainstream media. And that's what creates the snowball effect to get them out. And I think for a lot of distant right people, they may not like that because they think that this is more about restricting free speech than it is about combating anti or DEI. It's about to say the same thing twice. So you have to worry about that. It's like, what and what are the university, what is the deal these elite universities are going to make to get people like Bill Ackman off their back? If they just say, hey, look, we're going to not tolerate anti-Semitism at all. We're going to put an Israel flag outside our campus. You know, they probably would be satisfied with that. And I think that's why a lot of people need to be uh, careful about this stuff. And it's also, there is a, you know, circling the wagons around these universities and their officials who are going to be attacked for this. And unless they can connect them, unless it's like really, really bad plagiarism and it's reported in the mainstream media outlets, And there also needs to be that tie-in probably with the Israel stuff because that's what the mainstream media cares about more than DEI or some type of anti-Semitic accusation. You know, it's going to be very tough to get rid of some of these officials. So if it's just a random DEI person, I haven't really said anything much about much of anything about Israel and they're accused of shitty academic research. It's probably not going to push them out. But there is inherent value in going after these academics. I think even if they're not pushed out, I do think it's a much a good use of conservative media resources to just investigate all these people and show how like their jokes, that they were only elevated because of the race and like making fun of academia it really does undermine the prestige and legit and a little bit of their legitimacy to do this. And I think it's just I think there's inherent value in that. So I'm not going to dismiss it when they're going to do this. I think I'm just skeptical that they're going to push them out and that's going to lead to a complete rollback of DEI and these elite universities just because of the notion that's happening. When black leaders are really going after, uh, are really throwing a fit over Claudine Gay being removed, that's a signal saying you're like you're not touching DEI. And I think that they don't want to, these elite universities do not want to hand Chris Rufo and conservatives and Bill Ackman a total victory and then piss off all these blacks in the DEI complex in, in that case. They're going to defend the DEI complex and they're going to give some concessions on Israel and anti-Semitism and free speech, which will end up hurting the right. But a lot of these universities already... They already come down very hard on conservatives with the free speech matter. So it's more that they're just not 
um, expanding free speech for conservatives and they're not eliminating DEI. So it's not really quite the victory that we imagine. But there are positive things that can come out of this. As I said, the push to to investigate all these officials and expose them as horrible academics and as affirmative action hires and showing how the corruption within the university system is still has inherent value on its own. So I just want to admit, I want to say that. So that's a positive thing that could happen from this. And I think there, and it is going to happen because, you know, I've been told, you know, that there's a lot of fears around these universities over what's going to happen. And that there are a lot of, I know that there's a lot of conservative media attention for this. There's a lot of donor money going into conservative reporters to investigate this stuff. I mean, Bill Ackman himself has said he's going to pledge a bunch of money to go after these people. I don't know who he's financing or what. Uh, and he may just start financing going after media outlets, which that in of itself also has inherent value. But there is going to be this major push to investigate these people. And the majority of them are going to be minorities. And so I think that that's uh, showing all these elite black academics as plagiarist is uh, is is pretty good thing, I think. That would be that would be a um, push in the right direction, even though I don't think it will quite have the massive impact that people think. The other positive thing that's going to happen is that it's going to encourage Republican state legislatures with this intense focus on DEI and this being the forefront of what conservative media and Fox News and talk radio are talking about, it will encourage them to really go after hard or go hard after their programs, state university programs that are like this and to fire these diversity administrators to cut down on a lot of these ethnic studies courses and departments. And it will make them go, you know, crack down on their own universities. We've already seen seen this in a couple different states. A bunch of states have been banning these DEI programs, some more than others. And the most recent example is that the with Oklahoma, you know, they made massive cuts to diversity programs within their state schools. And there was a Big push within University of Oklahoma to resist it, but eventually University of Oklahoma caved in order to get state funding, and it was a big victory against DEI for this. So there are positive things that can come out of this, but I do think that a lot of the enthusiasm around Ackman and a lot of the wanting to read into the scenario the primary motivation is having the same motivation as us and wanting to say that that's definitely it and this is definitely going to lead to rollback of DEI at the elite universities is a little bit too presumptuous at this moment. And I think we have to see where how the cookie crumbles, so to speak, on what happens here. I still stand largely by my tweet when it comes with elite universities and its Ivy Lakes is that what's going to happen is that they'll just say we will promise to further... Uh, restrict anti-Semitic speech and we're going to add Jews within the DEI framework and this will you know satisfy most of their critics but I, I there's still I think conservative media will still go after these academics but if mainstream media is not caring about it and you know it's just relegated to I don't know Daily Caller or Washington Free Beacon a lot of these universities can just shrug their shoulders and just say oh well and that's that. There has been one example where conservative media just cared about something and then it got the ball rolling. That was something at Stanford where uh, there was a whole protest against a, a conservative uh, speaker and it was led by one of these diversity administrators at the law school, I believe. And eventually, but that did make its way to the mainstream media. I mean, Wall Street Journal was really interested in that. 
And eventually that got to donors and powerful people within Stanford and it forced that diversity person out. So sometimes it can have that effect, but it just depends on what occurs there and how much of it goes into the mainstream media and whether universities have to take it seriously or not. I think there may be a few people, but it, you do have to keep in mind is like, what is what can universities do to stop this backlash or to satisfy their critics? And is it rolling back DEI or is it curbing anti-Semitism? It's more the curbing anti-Semitism that I think. And it's more what they would rather do than rolling back DEI. So that's just all something that I have to keep in mind. Now moving on. Actually, there is a, a question about this that I, I just remembered. So I, And I said I was going to answer this question before the Cognolite. Uh, questions the rest of the commonly questions so i will answer this question as a reminder you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the convalete option at highly respected substack and that's at highly respected.substack.com and make sure to sign up for the iq supplements while you're there so this one comes from k max and he asks give me a sec Al Sharpton has been protesting outside of Bill Ackman's house over the Claudine Gay firing. In this case, does Sharpton see the Jewish and white distinction or is just see this as a white supremacy firing? Anyone with their brain would know Gay was fired over anti-Israel protests and not for being anti-white. Is Sharpton aware of this or he just sees this all issues as black and white and never Jewish involvement? Uh, I think if I remember correctly, Sharpton was accused of... Yeah, no, Sharpton definitely was accused because he led these, he was involved in these riots in New York City in the early 90s, but that pitted battle between blacks and Jews. And he was, uh, you know, pilloried as, as an anti-Semite for, for his involvement in that. Those were the Crown Heights riots of 1991. And for a long time, he had this like, he's an anti-Semite for that. Uh, he hasn't really gotten involved in that. You know, he hasn't gone down a Louis Farrakhan route. All the black leaders have had their own uh, moment of being accused of being anti-Semites. Um, maybe with the exception of Martin Luther King. I mean, uh, uh, Jesse Jackson certainly did when he was running for president. You know, he made like, you know, he called New York City, Jaime Town and a bunch of other stuff. And he was and his association with Louis Farrakhan also got him into a lot of trouble. So this is something common. But with now, he has that has, he hasn't really done this stuff for over 30 years. And so for him, it's just a white supremacy thing because white supremacy, you know, has a much greater taboo around it. And it's seen as a much more evil thing and saying like, oh, it's white supremacists and racists coming down hard on a strong black woman that allows for them to get a greater hearing in the left-wing media and win over their left-wing base much more so because they, liberals and the left-wing coalition, views white supremacy as their great enemy. And if they want to win them over and see Claudine Gay as someone they should care about, then you need to say that she's a victim of white supremacy. So there's no real distinction there when he is arguing over the subject. It's just over... Uh, it's just seen... She's just seen as a victim of white supremacy. Now for the final topic, I almost imagine I when this topic occurred, I almost imagine that it must have been a trick by the algorithm. It could have been even a federal conspiracy to elicit my frustration with uh, Elon Twitter and what I see on the right and to really uh, support my theory of the insane clown party. And I'm, of course, talking about what happened in Miami last week in Miami. 
there was uh, a magic outbreak at a mall and they had video of these black kids fighting and and causing uh, mayhem in the mall and they sent a large police presence out there and you know we see this stuff all the time in modern america and if you ever follow the news and if you particularly of a race realist bent you would know that what happened here but for some somehow somehow the large police presence and fake news, truly fake news on social media made people believe that it was not an appearance of just a magic outbreak, that UFOs or demons or the Nephilim, the Nephilim, which are a race of giants from the Bible, uh, had magically reappeared in Miami and decided to loot and (laughs) cause fights. And at first I was like, People can't be believing this stuff. And some of the stuff was it, uh, was right-wing accounts being sarcastic. It's like interdimensional shadow beings are fighting in the mall. And it's clearly like black youths fighting. Uh, but then people were like seriously taking this uh, and believing this. And there was one video. Um, and this did make it into the bigger right-wing accounts. Because DC Drano had a whole tweet about this. Where he's like, there's something unexplained here. He didn't go totally Nephilim route. And DC Drano is one of the biggest right-wing social media accounts there is. I mean, he's huge presence. He always goes viral. I mean, his interactions and engagement is, is off the charts. It's much higher than mine. And so him saying stuff actually is a sign that this is reaching into the larger right-wing sphere. And he's like, there's something going on here. What he tried to imply was not space aliens or demons popping up in Miami Mall. It was, uh, you know, terrorism of some sort or there's something, you know, shooting that they wanted to hide. And it's like, all these like magic fights in with them shooting at each other. It's like, this is not uncommon. Uh, But so you saw this, but the Nephilim. And there's this video that went viral of this woman with glasses, white, um, she's a white woman. Some of it was black people who were like, yo man, I saw, do, do. They were, they were aliens. They weren't human, what I saw. And then people like, listen to this young man's uh, uh, horrifying report. And I was like, you, please, come on. Uh, like, please don't fall for this stuff. But the main clip was a white woman with glasses who was like, let me show you the facts. They were young men with sticks fighting each other. I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think the real story is Nephilim. And people are like, you've got to watch this video. And then this video went viral and, and the stuff. And then I was like, and, and Nephilim went, went, was a trending topic. And I was like, uh, this can't be real. And for the all the time, I had to be like, there, I, these accounts have to be fake. It's just like a joke that it's been playing. And unfortunately, people generally believe this stuff. And so this is a real downside to Elon Twitter uh, for many things is that you will see something very obvious and usually it's just magic behavior and then people will reach to uh, X-Files explanations. And so it's like, (laughs) and even here, this is the most ridiculous case. And that's almost why I I know there was a few right-wing accounts that were doing the jokes, but I almost didn't want to do the jokes because our audience might believe the jokes on face value. (laughs) So it was, uh, it's a little insane that happens with that and um and we've seen this several times because i would there were several clips of just 
there was one somebody showed me uh i i saw an older clip from the summer where you know there was a you know a magic passenger on an airline who had a magic episode and uh had a very uh, a black passenger had a very magical episode on an airplane and somebody repeated that like these conservative influencers i think it was like benny johnson or somebody who was like saying this is demonic behavior this there's a demon on the airplanes and it's like i think this is just a, a black person you know <laughs> having a magic episode and th that's not very appealing and they always do like the demon stuff there was even one time where there was a weird black um uh, per there was a strange black woman who was invited to a senate committee hearing and she melted down over Josh Hawley's answers, I think, about like misgendering or something. And all conservative media is like, it's the first demon who's ever testified. It's like, no, I just think it's um, the, you know, the standard strange black academic that the people you're now trying to get after. I mean, maybe Claudine Gay was possessed by a demon, too. <laughs> so, um, you know, they always kind of go to the ridiculous explanations because a lot of our audience is... You know, they want the higher entertainment value from this stuff. And so seeing them all, you know, it's it's they always used to say this in journalism with the classic is like, you know, dog bites man is an interesting story. Man bites dog is the, inter is the more interesting thing. That's what causes the news. And for here with conservative media, they'll see, you know, magic behavior, magic episode, not as exciting. Uh, literally magic behavior <laughs> or uh, Nephilim. Much more exciting news story. It's going to get you more engagement and more excite our audience. And our audience, you know, will believe anything that they'll that's put in front of them. That as long as you say that the the deep state or whatever the mainstream media doesn't want you to know about the secret Nephilim rioting um, at at a Miami mall, and like our crowd will believe it. They're like, oh, I totally believe this. This is. We gotta. We have to have uh, uh, restrictions on the Nephilim. You know, we worry about the illegal aliens, but what about the Nephilim? And you know, I was almost saying, uh, you know, maybe Miami's new name should be the Fields of the Nephilim, which really good goth rock band, which I, I really liked. And that was always my whenever I hear Nephilim, that's usually what's my, the first impression I have. So it's always like very funny when this stuff happens. Uh, but if there's a larger case of just bemoaning how stupid a lot of this stuff is. And I really have to say is that race realism keeps you sane. It is really the answer to all the stupidity is that if you are a race realist, you will know the truth of the story without having to resort to to being an X-Files episode. You see some cops show up at the mall and there's reports of shooting and fire and fighting you already know the answer to this. So you're not going to fall for the Nephilim stuff. You you truly know what this is. And for a lot of conservatives, they are not race realists. So they're more willing to fall for these conspiracy theories. And it's the same. And we've had this time and time again. When you see crazy people on an airline and they're a certain hue, we know what's going on. I don't think there's demonic possession going on there. It's just, um, there's just standard behavior, <laughs> magic behavior. And there's even those goes applied to the stuff that people were trying to blame on demons, like the Travis Scott concert where people got trampled and died. If you looked at the crowd of the audience and how they're storming in and didn't have any respect for people or throwing trash and they just wanted to, you know, push up against each other and not and they couldn't control the crowd and the crowd, you know, this the concert was managed by minorities. You kind of knew what was going on there. This is like what happens in a lot of these scenarios but people then just blamed it was like a, a demonic event which i don't think was the case but this even extends to something like 
as far back as the Seth Rich story, which we're now coming off on eight years of the Seth Rich story. For those who don't remember Seth Rich, because there may be people who weren't around or paying attention to politics at that time. Seth Rich was a Democratic staffer who was shot to death in D.C. People just uh, thought he may have sent out the Hillary Clinton emails uh, that you know WikiLeaks got a hold of, and that's why he was executed. And Seth Rich became a huge news story for conservative media, but eventually, you know, even Fox News covered it. But eventually, when the other family began threatening to sue over these conspiracy theories, all these people, uh, news outlets had to retract and apologize. It was in similar cases to what we saw after the 2020 election to a lot of news outlets, conservative news outlets who ran stuff about Dominion voting machines. They all had to retract and issue apologies over threats of lawsuits. And so it was similar with. Uh, Seth Rich. But with Seth Rich, uh, the family was like huge liberals. And they were like, this guy's definitely a major, like a standard liberal who is all in for Hillary Clinton. And he was killed in a not so nice part of DC. And for race realists, you're just like, uh, we definitely know that we solved the mystery to this. It was likely just a black guy shooting him. And for, but for conservatives, that wasn't exciting. They wanted to have it. It was a trained assassin sent out by Hillary Clinton to to shoot this guy. And so more people got along, got into that story through that, through that. But it was, he was also not like, he was also clearly not the source of those emails is that they got him through a hack of somebody else's emails, like through a password encoded or something. And somebody clicked on it and that's how they got a hold of the emails through a lot of these things. They already discovered that. So it wasn't Seth Rich as the source, but people really followed along with that. But with all that in mind, I really want to say when you're seeing the Nephilim trend and you're seeing all these ridiculous conspiracy theories, race realism will lead you to the truth of these matters and will prevent you from going down really stupid rabbit holes. And even though everyone views race realism as the biggest taboo and something that's horrible and awful, um, it does keep you smarter and actually knowing the real truth of things that the mainstream media and the deep state don't want you to know. And... It's just, I think, maybe a little bit too hard for people to uh, to accept, and it's not as entertaining as the Nephilim appearing out of nowhere to fight at a Miami mall. But thankfully, these, uh, and also the funny thing is that they were saying that the shooting was uh, <laughs> the magic shoppers defending themselves. I was like, okay, uh, they're just trying to have like a movie scenario for this. So it's very funny, but uh, the Nephilim is a sign of we're going to see a lot more stupid going on into 2024. But actually, actually, the one thing I wanted to see that uh, final point story I wanted to make that race realism actually makes clear. And it's not just to avoid conspiracy theories. It'll also make you avoid mainstream media theories on this stuff. And one case is Oscar Pistorius, who was the famous Blade Runner who had amputated legs and ran on um, prosthetic legs. And he was like a good track athlete at the 2010 Olympics. I think it was the 2010 Olympics. And he's South African. He's a white Afrikaner. And he was in the early 2010s, shortly after he became famous as Blade Runner. He and the type of legs he was using were blades that were like not the type of usual prosthetic legs. They were uh, looked like kind of ramp type things. Anyway, <laughs> looked kind of very almost robotic, but he was very good at this. Anyway, he he shot and killed his girlfriend in you know the early 20th cents after this and his explanation was that you know he was like using the bathroom and he heard an intruder he didn't know who it was and he shot that person and it sadly turned out to be his girlfriend and for western media they're like how could you believe this there's no way possible this could be the case 
But with race realists, you know that, and I knew this at the time when the story broke because I was already aware of what these horrific home invasions and farmers in South Africa. I was aware of how terrifying South Africa is if there's a home invader. Is that if somebody's in your house, it's better to shoot first and ask questions later because the type of torture and horrific things that happen to the victims of this stuff, you know, you just it's a matter of survival and a lot of these people and this is why they have guns everywhere in their house because they may be somewhere and you know they may be not near their gun safe but they have to reach for a firearm in order to protect themselves and this is really what this and so i immediately believe pistorius's case story when it happened i was like obviously south africa is violent and terrible and you have to have guns everywhere and you always have to shoot first and ask questions later when this when the stuff happens now when he was convicted uh, I didn't pay as much attention. I was a little bit naive. And it's like, oh, maybe they found out that, you know, he really hated his girlfriend or something. Or they got into a massive fight. But then I was found out that actually they never proved a real motive. All they could find is that they had a few text messages of them arguing. And it's like, wow, first couple in hu- world history that's ever argued before. And <laughs> they took that as proof that he intentionally murdered her. And obviously this was run in a South African court with you know black run court and everything and they sentenced him to jail he's finally getting out but with western media they still think it's like oh this guy killed his girlfriend this is horrific that they're letting out this evil man this evil misogynist out of his out of out of jail but in reality if you know the truth about south africa you know what motivated him to shoot and it wasn't out of out it wasn't out of fear you know hate for his girlfriend it was fear over what might happen to him if he decides to wait and not pull the trigger and that's just the sobering fact of life in south africa and a large reason why he was convicted is because south africa didn't want this world this case getting international media attention to highlight how horrible south africa is for whites and why whites may choose to shoot at some person that they don't know who's in their house because of the terror that they have of these home invasions and farm murders and stuff and so they didn't want the internet they didn't want the western press to know this they didn't want to give him a chance to uh they didn't want to let whites know that they can defend themselves so they made sure they're making an example of out of him so once again race realism is a skeleton key to understanding the world and news events and to not and to let you know the truth behind a lot of matters without slipping in without falling for liberal media lies or a lot of these ridiculous conspiracy theory rabbit holes. So now on to the rest of the convoy questions, and I'll give my pitch again. As a reminder, you too can get, get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the convoy option at highly respected Substack. And that's at highlyrespected.substack.com. And make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. So the first question is a very serious one. It's from John. And John asks... If the Bagel Boss guy went viral today, would there be a different reaction to the video? And for those who don't remember the Bagel Boss guy, this happened five years ago. Time flies by when you're being keyed, I have to say. Bagel Boss happened in summer 2019 and was a very short man. He's like 5'2", who uh, had a meltdown at at a Bagel Boss shop. And he began yelling at some woman who's like making fun of him and was like, is, it's okay to make fun of short men? Is that okay? And then he just went off. He, he took his go-off juice about how women reject him on date, dating apps because of how short he is. He's also like in his 40s. And it was a very extremely funny uh, situation, a very funny video. I remember I was eating at a restaurant like for lunch. And 
I just began thinking about the video and I was like burst out laughing. It was so funny. Um, but the reaction was, um, uh, you know, it was a mixed reaction. You know, some ma mainstream outlets talked about it as like, this is toxic masculinity. But most people felt it was just a funny story of a short man, you know, airing out his troubles. And some people, uh, some people came to, you know, uh, some, you know, in his uh took his side in the story and were defending him, but it was like all over the place of what was happening with him. Would there be the same reaction today or a different reaction? I, I was thinking about that. I think it would be the largely the same reaction to what it, what was happening. The only difference is, is that now with Twitter, with everyone trying to, content farm and make money off it that there would be that somebody would invent try to invent a different spin on this to carry it along to make it like a week-long uh news thing and maybe i think conservative media would maybe talk about it a little bit more because they're more dependent on the content farm and what they're talking about um but it's like hard to put it in a culture war <laughs> factor because it's just a short guy uh, yelling about how he uh, he can't get women because of his height and him uh, and then he gets he, some guy tackles him who's much bigger <laughs> and it's just a funny it's a really funny clip but largely it would definitely go viral today I don't the only difference is is that I think the content farmers which are usually right aligned would try to figure out a narrative to make this go even more viral to make bank off it. But I'm not sure what angle they would do. Maybe they would do um, something as like uh, COVID has made people go insane or something, or people are losing their uh, demons. That's actually the one thing. I do think that demons would somehow factor into this story to make this go extra viral. It's like there are demons inf infesting the bagel ball shops. And uh, maybe that's what it would be. But outside of that, I think it would be the same reaction as today. But it's a very funny story. We uh, People who have, haven't seen it yet, because it's hard. It's, you know, a lot of people forget about everything that happened before 2020 or before COVID. And there's just so many funny stuff and important stuff to remember from for 2020. I don't know if Bagel Boss is one of the important things to remember, but it is something that was very funny uh, before then. So that was a fantastic question. We need more questions like that. Now going along, let's get with Mystery. Mystery has got some, uh, uh, some important questions for this. Let's see. What is... Mystery's got two questions today. Uh, Scott, can you paint a rough picture of what victory realistically looks like in your mind? The classic DR positions, ethnostate, Caesarism, and private life is reese realist, but public life is colorblind, classical liberalism, all things you're skeptical of. I wouldn't say I'm also, I wouldn't say I'm skeptical of the last one. No, I, I wouldn't say I'm that skeptical. Uh, some people may have felt that I was like uh, skeptical, but no, I'm not uh, skeptical of the last uh, proposition. I think the main problem is, is that public and private views are now largely the same for a lot of people but if you had private views that are race realists and public life is colorblind classical liberalism we'd be on a much better path maybe not the ideal path but it would be much better than our situation today uh or maybe there's a and he asks is there's maybe more nuanced take on option three that i'm overlooking that's true that is my nuanced take uh 
I'll go off on that one, finishing reading this question. Additionally, what do you think of the future holds for solid blue states with strong white demographics? Pacific Northwest, New England, Colorado, Minnesota. It's a radically different situation compared to red states like Mississippi and the rest of Dixie that are our guys but approaching a tipping point. Tipping point are hell holes like California and New York. So, um, you know, if victory, if you're giving those three positions... Uh, with ethnostate, I don't like people just don't want that. I mean, you well down the line, there would have to be a, like a major collapse and just a major revolution in the way in way white people think. But it's also you know it require a mass movement. It I, I that's the one I'm most skeptical skeptical of. Caesarism, not people expect like a Caesar in the next ten years. I mean that could happen. That could happen with a bait like a keyed caesar in like 20 years and with like really radical changes with america but uh for right now i'm i'm skeptical i mean outside of trump i mean if trump maybe was caesar um, i'm a little bit skeptical that he can do some of the things that people expect him can do that's like a caesar dictator way he can do a lot of great things which i'll i'm going to discuss in a podcast or article soon which I want to argue why you should be very white-pilled about a Trump administration and what he can do. Uh, but the Caesar aspect where people are like locking up like all of his enemies and stuff and canceling elections and canceling the press, I don't think he can do that. Um, and if we did have somebody with the ability to do that, it would be most likely a liberal, and I don't think anybody wants that. With the third option, I would, that would be ideal. That would, if you had millions of white Americans who believed what we believed and lived their lives out on these beliefs, we would be in a much better scenario. And then we could just say, oh, it's all about colorblind meritocracy. It's all about that. If you did have that scenario, it'd be, we'd be in a much better place. I don't know if that would be the dream for people, but I think that's something that could be realistic. The main issue we have is that privately they are colorblind classical liberals and they truly believe this stuff so it's like the same public and private and that's a that was a take i had in the iq supplement that he was responding to where he's saying i understand why people are wanting to say colorblind you know this is the most effective political strategy because we're not to the stage yet where senate candidates can go into race realism you know, we're not at that stage yet. We're maybe it'll be very tough to get that stage. So you'd expect to them if they're ever arguing against affirmative action or this stuff or anything of that sort, you could just say, well, you know, we want the best to have these positions. We want the and, and in large cases, this would probably benefit whites, especially when it comes to hiring practices, because now you're just seeing, you know, entry level jobs for people that are not even you know, from elite universities, they're having to deal with like, oh, well, we have to go with a minority instead of you. So this is a really widespread phenomenon. And if you had fully imposed meritocracy, you would definitely benefit whites uh, across the board. Universities, uh, it would still benefit whites, but it would also really help Asians, which that creates some other issues. Um, but yeah, if you, if you made more white Americans, if you had white Americans having the same views that they had in the 50s and early 60s today, and you just had colorblind meritocracy, we'd have a far better country. And if you had better demographics, that doesn't address the demographics issue. And the demographics issue has to come largely from immigration restriction. 
So if I if I could say what victory realistically looks like, it's uh, an America with a very strict immigration policy, uh, where the majority, or at least a strong strong minority of whites, have very strong racial race realist attitudes. And three, we pretty much have affirmative action, anti-white discrimination, and an anti-white historical framework for our history dominating. And those have been wiped away in favor of a more historic American nation-focused uh, history and, I, and viewpoint of how America is. That's what I would say is victory. So I guess that's a little bit theoretical, but that's my answer. And so what do I think the future holds for solid blue states with strong white demographics? Uh, well, I mean, they're trying to import a ton of immigrants, so I don't know how long they're going to stay um, very white. The, the, the thing about all these states is that they have very few blacks. And states with, very, with a high number of blacks is generally where the most right-wing people are. It's the South or it's these old, you know, these suburbs around these, uh, you know, urban areas in the North and the, and the Rust Belt where they experience blacks. Uh, the the number of blacks in your state generally determines how base the whites are. The fewer blacks, the, with the exception of the Dakotas, Montana, and Idaho, and uh, and Wyoming, you know, it's generally there. But even there, those whites are very conservative, you know, very Christian. But they're also like, I love my illegal immigrants, and it's like, um, well, in the South, you know, even though they may benefit a little bit more from illegal immigrants, I guess from in the farm labor, they'll still like, we don't want them because the, uh, the presence of blacks, I guess, gives them a heightened sense of their white, uh, identity. And it makes them see, you know, and a definitely a racial awareness much more so than whites living in these nice white States where they have very little diversity. And they're like, how can we import more immigrants here? And maybe that's an effect of just having very few blacks. Because, uh, I mean, he brings up Mississippi and Mississippi. The Mississippi whites are like the most staunchly conservative whites there are. And it's the blackest state in the country. And I always even remember this from the kids that I you know, went to college with that were from Memphis. And they were always much more racially aware than the kids from Nashville and elsewhere. Because, you know, it was an area where they really had to deal with uh, magic. So uh, there's something there. I don't know what quite... The future has from it's very dark for some of these states because they're very they're going in a much more left-wing direction than they were in the past and it's generally a problem that they just have such insane whites in these states that aren't dealing with diversity and they're very shielded off from this stuff and you know in Colorado, Colorado is unlike the other uh, states mentioned does have a high Hispanic population but you know even a high Hispanic population is very different than a high black population and so they're shielded off from the stuff and they kind of get in a lot more stupid ideas about how <clears throat> you know they need to welcome in more immigrants how they need to give a reparation so so they're they're definitely trending more left-wing as you can even see this in new hampshire which is in the past been a battleground state and it's a state that republicans always competed for but it's now often you know republicans are moving away from even having the idea of competing for it and there was thoughts that Oregon or Washington could be competitive states, but after the midterms in 2022, they're like, it's probably not going to be the case. Minnesota is another state where they thought that the Somali problem could turn the state red. And it almost went for Trump in 2016. But, and then after George Floyd, even I thought it was like, well, after George Floyd, these people have to wake up. 
Instead, the state went overwhelmingly for Trump, and it's not a state that Republicans aren't even competing anymore. Colorado is another example. So these states are going to get more and more left wing, and their percentage of the white population is going to drop from being more immigrant friendly and wanting more immigrants there. Um, so that's a little bit dark case, but it's, uh, the, the real hope lies in the states that are surprisingly more diverse. And that's just because the whites have a greater sense of our greater sense of racial awareness and are more likely to be conservative because they come in direct contact with the diversity. And it's how you're happening in, in, in Texas, like Texas, everyone would have thought it would have gone blue by now, but it's going to stay red for at least the rest of the decade. While, we're probably not going to Republicans are probably not going to win New Hampshire, Colorado, Colorado or Minnesota for the rest of the decade, even though they're much wider. So it's creating an interesting twist on demographics is destiny. You know, there's something a little bit more going on there. There's still a racial element to it. It's not like saying where, you know, people like Zai Jelani and and some of these conservatives are like, actually, diversity benefits Republicans. No, it's just that it's making uh, some of these whites more more diversity is making them more right wing and more racially aware in response to what they're seeing around them, and it makes them more you know hostile to immigration, more hostile to affirmative action, more hostile to reparations, and more just aware cognizant of the identity issues. So that is going to be an interesting paradigm in the future. So moving along, let's make sure I'm not missing any questions here. We're going to get to Dollar Bill. Dollar Bill asks, do you think there is a possibility that if Trump wins in November in January 2025, Biden will refuse to leave the White House? No, Biden will leave. Uh, I'm convinced. Biden can't. They can't. You know, we do talk about the hypocrisy of liberals, but they, they can't do their own stuff. Well, they could do a sort of stop the steal. But if by the time, if they're having their own January 6th and the Senate's about to ratify it, they're, uh, they're just going to have to accept it. I don't even know what reasoning they would have for it. They're, they're not going to bring out the Russia thing. Uh, they, they would have to go to the old hits that no one's going to buy. They're not going to buy the Russia stuff. They're not going to buy that these states won fair and square. Because most of the, if he wins these battleground states, you know, like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin and stuff, you know, they... You know, they have like Democratic officials there. You know, it's not like Republican dominated places, especially in Arizona. You know, you know, they Wisconsin has a super majority in the state legislature, but it has a Democratic governor. And, you know, Michigan, it's all entirely Democratic controlled um, legislature and governor. I forget if it's the case in Pennsylvania, if that's there. I think the Republicans still have a majority in the state legislature. but They have a Democratic governor. Arizona has got a Democratic governor. Uh, Nevada has a Republican governor, but a Democrat legislature, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, in some of these states they are going to win, they can't really prove like, oh, Republicans hijacked the election through there. And it's, uh, there's not even like areas where they can find because there's not these like deep urban areas where like Republican areas where they can just magically conjure up votes. But so I don't even know what their arguments would be. There could be some, you know, they had that plan outlined in 2020 of Trump won to have these mass protests and stuff and and to, uh, you know, try to, dis, you know, defeat Trump's victory, which they could reignite again. But, you know, if it comes around the time of if it's not upset the Electoral College and how the Senate's ratify and Congress ratifying the results, 
I don't know how Biden can um, can stay. And so my most likely suggestion is Biden will definitely leave the White House if Trump wins. But there are some other goofy things that could happen in between then. So there, uh, we'll have to keep an eye on it. But I, I'm more confident that he'll leave. And this is another question. This is from a different John. We've got a lot of Johns who are big fans of Highly Respected. And he said, don't know if you saw that the Greerhead Pledge was discussed earlier this week on the Thought Crime podcast of Charlie Kirk and Jack Pasovic. I'm aware. It was very cool. Very cool. I'm glad that they talked about it. They began adding a lot of other things that were like, we're not going to watch porn and we're not going to drink alcohol. Some of the stuff is like, it's just like, you don't even need to stress. It's like, uh, generally, I imagine my audience is not already watching porn. It's not already doing some of these really bad behaviors. And... Um, I don't need to stress that. So it's more just these behaviors that I think they might be doing that I want them to stop doing. So it's like, you don't need to say like, ban, don't watch porn. It's like, that's already been articulated by other people. I'm trying to articulate things that are maybe not being argued by other people that makes it stand out and more unique. And it's also habits that some conservatives may be encouraging among their audience that you should not have them do. And so, yeah, I thought it was really cool. Um, I probably needed a little bit go on myself to explain it a little bit better. But I thought it was great, great. Uh, I'm glad the Greer Head Pledge is, is taking off and is going to uh, take America by storm at any point in time. I think maybe 2024 is going to be the year of the Greer Head, so we'll see. Uh, going along with this question, I knew Turning Point has gotten better, but because I've only followed them on occasion, I didn't realize that they were that base or keyed, as you like to say. Either way, hope the pledge continues to spread. And yes, I do. It is one thing, actually, with uh, Charlie Kirk, is outside the pledge, he had an amazing podcast episode with uh, Heather McDonald. Heather McDonald's always been writing for race and stuff that we care about for years and years. And in this podcast episode, he really got... Um, uh, he had some heated uh, base moments, you could say. He was like saying, um, you know, Heather McDonald's talking about like uh, white replacement and great replacement and stuff. He's like, you know, when I'm on the line with a customer service and there's a moronic black woman helping me out and I get some very unwholesome thoughts. What do you think about this? <laughs> it's like, it's just like such a common, like the whole conversation you could have never imagined mainstream conservatives having just even three years ago and now it's like he has this he has like a conversation like that once a week and so you know there's still there's still some problems with elon uh, i almost called him elon there's still some problems with elon too there's still problems with charlie kirk but i think he it's good that you have major mainstream figures saying the stuff and putting that stuff out there and putting this in the minds of their audience because a lot of their audience is just not aware of this stuff. And if you make them aware of the stuff and repeat it often, they then begin to open their eyes. This is the same example or the same thing happened with Tucker and his Fox News show. So that is all very good news that that's happening. So we're finally got to New England refugee reason why he's living in New England is how libtard it's getting, as we explained in the last, <laughs> in one of the last questions. But here his, he is going to finish us off with his question. And he's saying, liberals screech, screech and gnash their teeth when they talk about population neutralizing institutions like the Electoral College and the Senate. They call these anti-democratic, clearly not knowing the history behind binding the states together. What are the chances we see either of these institutions diminish or outright gone in our lifetime? 
Uh, I think it's um, very... Um, they can't really diminish them. It's going to be around for a while, unless they somehow got a supermajority in the Senate and Congress. I, I think to eliminate the Electoral College, it would take two-thirds. Uh, I, I think it might even take a constitutional amendment. Don't quote me on this, but it's something that's outlined in our founding documents, and I would imagine that that would require a, a constitutional amendment for Especially, well, well, definitely with the Senate. <laughs> that would absolutely require a constitutional amendment. And the Senate is not going to abolish itself. So the Senate is always going to be here, whether they like it or not. Now, the Electoral College is what they really care about. And I'm pretty sure that that would require a constitutional amendment to remove. And it's no longer, a, I'm pretty confident as I am confident. I had a, I double-checked this, and yes, it, it would require a constitutional amendment. Liberals claim there's a loophole around it, but I guarantee you that the courts wouldn't require that. And that would still require a majority of Congress to pass, which I don't even know if Democrats want to go that far. I mean, it was like the same with removing the filibuster, which is not constitutionally protected. Uh, it, it does, it can just require a simple majority to get rid of. And they, you know, Democrats, moderate Democrats had hesitated on getting rid of it. They don't they don't want to do that. So it's um, no, it'll those will definitely be with us for a long time. If Democrats can get a supermajority in Congress and the Senate, unless they're somehow still losing presidential elections there, why would they get rid of the Electoral College in the first place? I mean, if they're able to get, you know, the amount of votes or the amount of Democrats into Congress with a two-thirds majority, uh, they would be less um, motivated to eliminate the Electoral College. So, no, those will be around with us for a long time. And those are and those are to the rights advantage. So those do give us the ability to check some of the advances and decline of the country and to give us some power to you know, counteract this stuff. If we eliminated this stuff, it would be horrible for us. And... So fighting to preserve it is very good for us and keeping those things alive is very good for us. And thankfully, Democrats will never be able to eliminate those two things because they will never have the number of votes to pass a constitutional amendment on it. So that is it uh, for this Highly Respected. Hopefully you guys enjoyed. We're going to have more great content coming up for this week and for next week. And we're definitely not taking... Monday off of Martin Luther King. That is not a holiday that Highly Respected celebrates. So we will be back with a fantastic episode on that day's subject and on the and on the Iowa caucuses that are set to take place. So be on the lookout for that. So until next time, stay respected.